Away they go. No problems with the start. There is two one hundred in the second inning. Gary Hall Jr., the extrovert, and Ian Thorpe battling it out down the pool. Thorpe is starting to go away from him. Joining me today on the show to go through all the action in the pool from last week's swimming in Tokyo are some absolute legends here to help lend some credibility to off the blocks. Firstly, a man who helped me all last week and loved it so much. He's back again, former world record holder and world champion, Mr. Bobby Hurley. And also back again for another round of chat is Miss Gian Rooney, two-time Olympian, Olympic gold medalist, a former world champion herself. Guys, thank you for coming on. Pleasure. Thanks for having us, Robbie. Oh, mate, as I said, you guys lend the credibility. I just sit here and throw out the questions and, and people are here to, to hear your answers. <laughs> now, um, obviously, you know, we get stuck into some individual performance and highlights from last week. But tell us, you know, you've been watching, you know, what are your experiences, um, you know, from being a former athlete? To watching Gian, we we famously last week saw you on Instagram quite a lot, jumping up and down in your lounge room. For me, I'm just the average punter sitting there watching, but you guys have been there and done it. So, what's it like from your perspective watching the games? Well, to be completely honest, this is the first time for me, probably in a long, long time, that I've been able to be the armchair super fan that I've always feel like I am inside but being not a part of the commentary team or the broadcast meant that I could just soak it up and enjoy it as a fan and I absolutely loved it and so people probably have now a very real idea of what I want to do in commentary (laughs) that have to kind of um, maintain a level of uh, respect and responsibility where when you're calling but uh, I absolutely loved this Olympics and I don't know how any Australian could say anything otherwise there might have even been a little bit of jealousy for my first time in my life of the athletes that were a part of this team because it was just such an epic team and I think for me not only all the performances as a whole that were sensational but how cohesive this team seemed to be how supportive how um, having each other's backs they had in Tokyo it was just it was just a joy to watch across the board. You'd have to agree, Bobby. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, again, just being a fan, um, sitting at home and, and absorbing all the information and watching the heats and, and the finals, and we didn't have to get up in the middle of the night like sometimes you normally have to when it's an overseas competition. So it was just there was just so much swimming. You know, there was podcasts with you every day, Robbie. Um, Australia were winning gold medals on every single morning of competition, which... I don't think it's ever been done before. So there was so much celebration after every final session. Um, and every race was live. And, and that's something that that I really like just as just as a competitor to see swimmers from lane eight winning gold medals that we've never heard of. Um, you know, champions that have seemed so unbeatable in the last sort of Olympic period going down. And and every race was a was a battle. Every race, um, everybody had a chance to to be on the podium and to get a medal or, or to make a final, and and that just made the week so exciting. And um, you know, when it sort of finished, it was a bit anticlimactic. Like, there's no more swimming to watch on TV. Um, I got so accustomed to watching it every morning and, and every night, and and loved it. Absolutely, yeah. I felt exactly the same. Now, guys, before we get stuck into the 2020 games. How excited are we for Brisbane 2032, which was just announced, you know, over a week ago? Now, obviously, selfishly, we're excited because, you know, we're either going to be there as, as coaches or as commentators or as even just spectators. But also, particularly with swimming in Australia, how excited are we for the funding that no doubt is going to come back into the sport to help boost, you know, sports and swimming over the next 10 years? So exciting. From my perspective, uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, at the Sydney 2000 Olympics and the money that was in sport across the board in the lead up to Sydney was phenomenal. We hadn't seen anything like it. 
um, before and it obviously followed through until the next Olympiad in 2004 in Athens and that's why we were almost so incredibly successful I believe as an Australian Olympic team across the board in 2000 and 2004 and so there is obviously the onus on a host country to want to perform at a home games and so you're right Robbie in terms of the funding that's going to come into the sport the facilities that are going to get upgraded the support that the athletes are going to have and then on top of that for the community for to enjoy those facilities and the upgraded amenities that come with having the Olympics it's all a positive thing for me and uh, you know I think about the athletes that are probably around that you know early teenage years now uh, and even younger that I remember when the Sydney 2000 Olympics were announced I was a 10 year old and I remember thinking oh that's pretty cool and I didn't have any comprehension of or, or thought process of I want to be there one day or I want to go or anything like that but I clearly remember when Sydney was announced as the, the host of the 2000 Olympics. And, you know, a lot of kids now will be saying, I remember when Brisbane 2032 was announced and fueling that fire, that excitement, that want to be an Olympian. And especially at the same time that we've done so well at the Olympic Games in Tokyo, all of a sudden it's like, oh, right. I want to do karate. I want to do beach volleyball. I want to play for the hockey roos or the Matildas. You know, that fire is starting now, which is incredibly exciting given that it's only 11 years away. Yeah, the timing couldn't have been more perfect for, for Australia as a country. I think we're coming off our best ever Olympic Games uh, in the pool. And I think we're on track for our best ever Olympic uh, result as, as a whole Olympic team. And this time we're also, we've got the announcement 11 years before the Olympics, whereas in Sydney, I mean, I was, I was a little bit young, but I think it was seven years. So seven. the build-up is, is four years longer. So we've got four more years to prepare for this, four more years to get funding, to get hyped up for it. And combined with our really positive results and, and Amazon doing a really good job with the swimming this week, um, after probably a period of, of struggling with the Australian swim team, I think we could be really thriving for the next 10 to 15 years um, leading into Brisbane 32 and, and even post that. And, I mean, on, on my own sort of personal front, I was 11 years old um, in Sydney 2000 and, and went to the trials and went to a few other sports, um, not the swimming, at the actual games. And I just really like that my two kids will be, they will be, 10 and 12, I think, in 2032. So I just really like the, the mirroring of um, sort of the ages there. So they just, you know, I, I would love to be involved um, at the 2032 games in, in some sort of capacity, but even just as a spectator to bring them up and, and what, have them watch some sports and, and be inspired, um, I think will, we'll, you know, definitely inspire a generation of, of athletes in Australia um, after that. So, so I'm really appreciative of that. Absolutely, Bobby. It's funny we were, you know, I've got a young daughter as well, um, who's two or she'll be three soon. And I was talking to Elka Graham the other day. Welcome, Wayland. Sorry now, but we were talking the other mm. day with the young kids and how excited it'd be just to even have, you know, Charlie be the next Nikki Webster just flying around the <laughs> flying around the stadium. So she doesn't have to be there as an athlete. She can get up there and sing and dance. She certainly loves to do that. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely exciting times. Let's get stuck into what an incredible week it was in the pool just last week. Uh, from an Australian perspective, but also just a genuine fan of swimming. It, it was phenomenal. In terms of trials, guys, in terms of the trials we saw, and we talked about this just before we even started, it used to be around that March, April time, uh, the US would always do it around just a month outside of the Games. We changed our tax a little while ago, but this was the first Olympics we sort of had seen how that went. Obviously, uh, we saw some phenomenal performances. Are we fair to say now that's paid off that change? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's one of the things we spoke about in our preview, Robbie. Um, we moved the trials to five weeks before the Olympic Games. So they were held in, in mid-June. And then, you know, with COVID situations and whatnot, pretty much the team went straight into a training camp environment in Queensland for four weeks and then flew to Tokyo to compete. So in the past, we've had our trials in, in late March or April. And then you have to peak, obviously, at the end of the summer of the Australian summer. And then you have to get through about four months of training in winter as well. 
um, which is which is difficult. And then you normally fly into Europe or America to get uh, to get race practice too. So the change has been forthcoming for a long time. A lot of people were pushing for it. A lot of head coaches were pushing for it, and and for whatever reason, it wasn't it wasn't able to get done until until Jaco Vaharen from from the Netherlands took over as head coach of Australia and um, and implemented that probably three or four years ago. So we did this um, at the 20, 2018 Commonwealth Games, um, and we had a great Commonwealth Games, and everybody in form and, and swimming well. Uh, we did this the trials five weeks prior to the 2019 World Champs, and again, it was a really good result at our World Champs. And this time, it worked at the Olympics. So it's not it's not a fluke. Um, it's not coincidental. It's it's something that America have done um, for their whole history and has continually worked. Um, and we're sort of one out of one now doing it. So um, I think it's a winning combination, and and we definitely shouldn't be changing it anytime soon. I think there's lots of things to discuss within this. Uh, obviously, across the board, if you're looking at the majority, we've seen great performances at trials and, again, at the major international, which in this case happens to be the Olympics. Um, probably where we need to focus on a little bit is what were the distances or the athletes that didn't back up after a great trials performance to the Olympic Games. And we always know it's going to be much more difficult for our distance athletes, our endurance athletes, to have that double taper and try and find the middle ground between being good enough and fast enough. We know how tough those qualifying times are at trials to make the team. But then with only five weeks, all of a sudden our distance swimmers seem to almost struggle a little bit to to back that those performances up across the board and you saw Elijah Whittington obviously a sensational trials and then it just not coming together once in Tokyo um that I, I I find this fascinating this is where you look at the likes of a Katie Ledecky and you go we know that she had about a two-day back off for her American trials and then that's all she needed. I, I think it might have even been 24 hours that came to be that she had a taper before trials, knowing that she's good enough to make the American team and then properly taper coming into Olympics. But when she's also got something ridiculous like 4K of racing, if not more, throughout an Olympics and her distance event are at the end of the week, she's almost tapering throughout her actual week of racing. She's almost having to come into it and find speed in those 400, 200. And that's why we almost saw she was better throughout the 15 and then great at the 800 at the end of the week. So I think there's lots of fascinating things going on here, but our sprinters did exceptionally well, probably up to our 200 metres exceptionally well. And there's probably a few things that need to be tweaked for our distance athletes going forward. Absolutely. I think that's um, some, you know, great observations there, Gian, especially to, to Katie Ledecky. And we watched that incredible four by two and how she finished uh, that race. That certainly was different to her individual 200. Mm. And yeah, we saw her progress through the week. You mentioned Katie Ledecky. No doubt we, you know, previewed some great head to head matchups, even going all the way back 2019. I first chatted to you, Gian, and we talked about the crystal ball and matchups coming up and that didn't stop. We, we just kept you know, we just kept getting ready and ready for it. Obviously, with uh, Chalmers and Dressel, we at that stage had um, previewed Matt Horton and Sun Yang, but we know that that didn't uh, eventuate. What races did you get excited to watch? What head-to-head racing did you love the most this week? Oh, far out. As Bobby said before, you could almost pick one from every day, but um, I'm a little bit biased. Uh, for me, probably... The, the one that I felt incredibly emotional about was the women's 100 backstroke. And that's because of the backstory of Kaylee McEwen and Emily Seabom, our two Australian girls in that final. To watch the progression of that women's 100 backstroke, we know, um, we knew coming into it, obviously, how Kaylee's father had passed away from brain cancer only 11 months prior. The fact that his dream was to see both of his daughters compete at an Olympics. He had seen elder sister Taylor compete in 2016. If the Olympics had been held in 2020, he would have seen Kaylee swim. The emotion behind that, what that family has been through, the fact that she has a tattoo on her foot that says, I'll always be with you from her father. And uh, 
then with that backstory in mind, with Emily Seabon going to her fourth Olympics uh, and the roller coaster almost that she has been through as well just to make this team, and then throw in the mix an Olympic record that was broken by three athletes. It was broken four times <laughs> by three athletes to get to the 100 back final. So it, it was just like this incredible event of stories and times and just weren't quite sure, you know, right up to the point who was going to win that 100 back final. It was going to be close. It was going to be tight. And I watched that race almost with tears running down my, my face because Kaylee was about third, I reckon, with five or six metres to swim. And she needed to find something. And she found something. And I truly believe that in that moment, her dad helped her out. Like I, I get choked up just thinking about it. I feel like there was something that just clicked for her in that final five metres and uh, Sholto was watching down from above and said, I'm going to help you out here, kids. So for me, Kaylee with the win in those circumstances and Emily with a bronze, as I said, to still be competitive and, you know, on the medal dais at your fourth Olympics is just a superstar story all around for me. So, you know, I could pick about six of them, but that's probably my highlight. Bobby, I know we chatted, mate, a lot last week. Did you have one when you looked back on the week? Because obviously when we're in it, and Jan, you'd know this, obviously, you know, with broadcasting and you're in it. So sometimes it's not until a week you sit back and you look over and you're like, God damn, that was some great racing. Bobby, have you have you looked back at one and thought that that was a great race that maybe we didn't appreciate enough at the time? Um, you can't go past Ledecky and Titmus in that women's 400. Um, it came early in the week as well on, on the second day of finals so you know there's still that element of oh we don't know how one person's going how the other person's going um obviously ariane came in as the red hot favorite uh well not the red hot favorite but with the time on the board and then um katie ledecky swam a really good um positive heat swim which just chatting to the other australians and even a few people over in the us the tide started to turn towards the momentum going with the champion, with the defending champion and the world record holder, Kate Ledecky. So to have a heavyweight battle, clearly the two best distance female stars in the world, you've got one who, who will go down as, as the greatest of all time and, and the new challenger who's, who's Aussie, who's got Dean Boxall in her corner, um, which is such, a, such an asset to have. And then the race was exactly like we thought it was. Um, it, 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 it was just a, a battle between the two of them and, and Ariane Titmus swam that to perfection and swam a PB in the Olympic final to overtake, you know, the greatest distance swimmer of all time and, and win her first Olympic gold medal. And then we see Boxall cheering in the stands. It's um, that one that one lived up to everything. You know, that one was as good as, you know, Thorpe's victories and, and Susie in 2000 and some of those memorable ones because the hype was there and then the race delivered um, in our favour as well. Um, a, a second close call, obviously, with Dressel versus Carl Chalmers in the 100 mm. freestyle as well, that the hype was there. Um, you know, hats off to both guys. They swam extremely well in the final. Dressel got it on the touch, so it didn't quite go in Australia's favour. Um, it would have been nice to see Kyle in the lane next to him and, and see those two, um, you know, massive sprinters in the pool just going, just breathing towards each other and going face to face. Um, but again, for me, it's it's those it's those battles where there's a lot of hype and build up and intensity coming in. And then it's not like one person won by five seconds. It's, it's an actual battle and it's an actual race. Um, so they're the two that, that I think everybody, no matter if you're American or Australian or wherever you're from, you sat back and went, that was a quality race. And I'll never forget that one. Well, I'm and glad isn't that you incredible. We've just spoken about, you know, our favorite moments and neither of us have included the fact that, Either of our moments included Emma McKeon, who is now our most successful Olympian yeah. ever. Yeah. You know, like seven medals in one week at the Olympics, um, two of them individual gold. Uh, so Emma gets performance uh, performer of the week, if you like. Oh, and for sure. uh, it just goes to show the depth and the talent of this team in the fact that we've got moments and stories that uh as i said we could both list 12 of them each <laughs> well 
I think with those ones, Gian, to your point, like it was that anticipation that I spoke about, like, you know, those races between Ledecky and Tipness and Chalmers and Dresser, we talked about for two or three years. Yeah, this wasn't yeah. just a culmination of, oh, Emma's looking good at trials. I think Emma's going to do mm-hmm. well. Phenomenal mm-hmm. performance from Emma McKeon. But if we're being honest, you know, we weren't looking at that three yep. years ago going, oh, you know, can't wait to see Emma McKeon. Again, no offense to Emma, but this mm. that's just how it was built. So just that anticipation. And we haven't seen that. And we talked about this again, you know, in 2019, myself and you. We haven't seen that in swimming for such a long time. So it was great mm-hmm. to have that back in. Now, Bobby, you just touched on Dean Boxall's performance. Now, <laughs> I can't I, I can't go away from this without just bringing it up because no doubt there was a little bit of debate amongst the swimming fraternity whether, you know, it was acceptable, his performance, more so from the US, um, you know, people, you know, in the way he was going about it, doing his best ultimate warrior impersonation. Now, for me, I loved it. I think it was just a culmination of all those, you know, days and, and weeks and months of hard work and effort and energy and just his passion came out. So I loved it. What about for you guys? Did you hear any other commentary outside of other than just you know loving it and feeling like as it was said in the commentary as well he was everybody in the lounge room like what he was doing we we're all doing in our lounge rooms without without i know dean a little bit but not like you know we're super close to him or anything but the people in australia that known d boxel wouldn't have expected anything less than that celebration uh, having his swimmer, his, his main swimmer, Ariane Timmes, win, win her first Olympic gold medal. Um, I was surprised. There was a little bit of pushback from, from the Americans. I, I think that's just a little bit of, um, you know, sour taste in their mouth after mm-hmm. watching Ledecky get beaten. But, you know, he does, like, if you go to a college meet in the US, every coach on pool deck is acting like Dean Boxall. Yeah. So, like, he's actually got more American sort of passion and, and celebration and, and um, characteristics about his coaching um, than, than the rest of the Australian team coaches. Mm-hmm. And that definitely works for, for his swimmers. And the journey that those two have been on and how she's, she's gone from, I think it was fourth in 2017 behind Katie um, to pushing her at Pampax to beating her at Worlds and then, you know, almost getting her world record at the Olympics. It's, like for me, that's that's a justified celebration. I, I loved it. Um, I think everybody in Australia loved it. Um, Ariane Titmus loved it, and she appreciates him, and and she gave him a hug and cried and and um, said how thankful she was for for all of his efforts. So um, I see no problem with it. I completely agree. I've got no problem with it either. And I think the fact that we had a camera on him ready to go. Like yeah. you, you didn't see any other coaches' reactions as quickly as we saw Dean Boxall because anyone in Australian broadcasting and anyone in Australia, as you said, Bobby, knew that if Ariane did something like that, that was going to be the reaction from Dean. We saw it at trials. We see it with every oh, yeah. one of his athletes. Um, so the camera was ready to go on Dean before she'd even finished the race, knowing that they were going to get TV gold from him. And... Uh, uh, that's as you said there's his swimmers love it that's the passion that he brings to the table every day and I think you touched on it Robbie it's also a release for him because we think about our coaches and we quite often leave them out in a way when we talk about the pressure that our athletes are under the pressure and the expectation and the build-up it's just as much if not more for a coach I mean I can't imagine what's running through your mind as a when, when you really think about particularly Dean, and this is the first Olympics that he and Ariane have been together too, and the expectation on them as a pair was huge, ginormous. It's the first time that an American um, broadcast team was sent to Australia, they did two weeks in quarantine, to film Ariane training in the lead-up to these Olympics to build up the rivalry between her and Katie Ledecky. Like, the pressure and the expectation was enormous. And so not only is that do we expect that reaction from Dean when his swimmers do well, it was also a huge release. Now, just a quick one for you guys. What did we make of the US relay performances in Tokyo? Now, we're used to seeing them up on the podium for almost all relays. Don't get me wrong. They were still up there. And I thought, you know, in some instances, they did a phenomenal job, but certainly not as much as we've seen them in the past. What do we put that down to, do we think? Well, we do I, I, liked, <laughs> I, I liked. I uh, liked. 
I got hyped up for all the relays because the US team were vulnerable. Um, and we just never see them um, lose relays um, at a world or an Olympic level. Um, on the women's side, you know, Australia started red hot favourites in both freestyle relays. Um, the mixed, the mixed relay was was you know America were favourites, but was sort of anybody's game. And then in the on the men's side, um, the relays that didn't have Caleb Dressel just didn't look strong on paper and, and definitely the other nations sort of um, take confidence from that. So I think we mentioned in the preview, Robbie, that Phelps, like we, we underestimate, obviously Michael Phelps is the greatest of all time in his 23 Olympic gold medals, but he was so good on those American relays. Like how many American relays was Michael Phelps on that got beaten? Like seriously, two, maybe three off the top of my head. Um, so he's probably something like, 10 out of 12 gold medals um, in relay, some, something like that. Mm. And now we take him off that team. You take Ryan Lochte off a couple of those relay teams as well. And relay was a race. So actually the most dominant relay wins came from Australian women's 4x100, um, which we smashed the world record in, and the Great Britain men's 4x200. Um, so across the seven relays, US won two two men's relays, um, two out of seven, which is incredibly bad for, for the US team. And, um, and the mixed and one of the men's relays didn't even get on the podium. So I know they'll, um, they'll bounce back from that. They'll definitely look deeper into that and sort of find the cause and, and what the, their problems were. But um, the rest of the world is, is getting a lot better. Australia is putting a lot more focus on relays. We've got the depth now and now we've got the superstar talent especially on the women's side to to win relays um and great britain and canada um were repeatedly on the podium too so um this meet was almost the u.s falling down a few notches um where the rest of the world can can compete with them and, and actually beat them in team events which is unheard of um for as long as i've been following swimming you know Completely agree. There were so many great relay moments and so many unbelievable moments. Like, Bobby, you touched on it. The 4 by one freestyle girls to, to lead it off was just extraordinary. Not only a defending championship, but a three-peat. They'd won it in 2012, won it in 2016, and here they are breaking their own world record in 2021. And I can't even comprehend the depth that is that women's freestyle relay team like the fact that you've got Meg Harris and Molly O'Callaghan and mm. would 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 all they could have fielded the B team and probably still challenged for a medal that we are that strong over the women's four by one freestyle so it was just extraordinary to lead things off and then you look at as you said the men's four by two for the US it's the first time in Olympic history that the men from the US have not medaled in the four by two freestyle relay the first time it's ever happened and uh gosh we were talking about a lot of things behind the scenes in terms of that the fact that there was huge conjecture in the us and on the nbc coverage as to why dressel didn't swim that four by two whose choice was it that he didn't swim was it his choice that he didn't swim knowing that the 100 free final was the next morning was it um american that they didn't think that he was going to be strong enough over that 200 distance was it the fact that you know uh there were lots of different things at play. And then in stark contrast, we see Kyle Chalmers swimming the four by two and loving being part of that men's four by two and, and really helping that team to the bronze medal in that, in that race. And then coming did down. Did it cost to, him, Gian? Did it did cost, cost him? him? I was just about Kyle to say, what, what did he miss didn't. by? 0.06? Yeah, yeah Dressel beat him by 0. 0.06. Well, not only did he swim them, guys, he swam the heats as well, which we don't yeah. often see. He, he swam the heats uh, of, I think, nearly all the relays he was in. No, so. Carl, yeah, he swam the heats of the 4x100 early. Not he didn't do the heats two. of the 4x200. Yeah. He did yep. the heats of the mixed relay. But I think um, going back to Caleb Dressel, I, I think he hadn't won an individual race yet. So I... I my feeling is that the U.S. coaches held him back. Mm. They chose him an individual. Um, yeah, it chose was, an individual. Yeah, it over was line a relay. Ball. Yeah, yeah. The U.S. were probably not 
going to beat Great Britain in that relay. They didn't have enough sort of sort of star power. But I would refuse to believe that if Caleb Dressel got offered the relay swim, that he would say no. Mm. I think the coaches would have had to make the decision exactly the same as the Kyle Chalmers mm. or any any other of these um, mm. you know big sort of arrogant sprinters. They want to race mm. for the team and and for their mates. And and my feeling is that if Dressel got offered the the, mm. the the spot he would have competed so I don't think he mm. got offered the spot yep I think you're right and back to your other question did it cost Kyle uh, there was a few things in that final that just didn't go Kyle's way I would have loved to have seen the difference of if Dressel had swum that 200 the night before just how that impacted his performance mm. um, sorry the morning before and uh, I also would have loved to have seen what would have happened if Kyle was the other side of Dressel in that final and was breathing mm. to his right coming down that last leg. We know Kyle, that's where he shines. He's an absolute warrior. He's the gracious racer. So in terms of if he was in a, within a sniff and could see Dressel, I reckon the result would have been different. And, you know, it's, it's hard for Kyle, I think, who is still very tactically. He knows how to, how to best race his races but emotion almost takes over. You you back him with five metres to go to get his hand on the wall for, first if he could have seen where Dressel was. So flying a little bit blind in that final, I think there's a few things that uh, the cards didn't quite fall Kyle's way. And uh, But hats off to him. And the way that he spoke in that post-race interview, the, the athlete that he has become over the last five years since he surprised us all in Rio, I just could not like the guy more and could not be more excited to see uh, what this does for him going forward. Well, the reason, the reason he was down in lane seven probably goes back to the fact that he had 100 freestyle semifinals the first event of the morning and he had a, a relay where he had to go max to put Australia in a medal-winning position at the end of the morning. So I think he took the semi-final a little bit easy. It was He did a slow time. He only qualified sixth fastest mm. um, rather than going, this is all I've got today. I can go max. It's not really going to hurt me. I've got 24 hours before the final and I'll mm. be in the middle of the pool. But I'm the same as you. Like we rarely, with 25 to go, with 15 metres to go, I think everybody in Australia thought Kyle Chalmers was going to win because we never see him not win from that position if he's that close mm. with just 15 metres or, or less to go. So I actually re-watched that race a couple of times, especially the last 50 metres going into the finish. And Kyle, he's, what he normally does, he breathes every second stroke and he's got this big powerful kick and he powered into the finish. Obviously, he was breathing away from Dressel. But watching Caleb Dressel, we, we've seen him put his head down at the end of his races mm. and, and no, no breath into the finish. This time, he actually did 16 freestyle strokes, no breath, into the finish. He, he started that at exactly 15 metres out from the wall. I went back to some of the other world championship races and he normally only does 12 or 13 strokes, no breath, which is incredible. Most people can't do five or six strokes without breathing into the finish so he normally does 12 or 13 this time he did 16 strokes no breath which is insane um kyle breathed every two and kyle actually breathed twice under the flags he breathed on his second last stroke into the touch and what was the difference six one hundredths of a second um so i think dressel dug down and did something even more incredible than he normally does on that finish um and and he really needed to use every ounce of, of energy and and um, power in his body on that finish um, to get the margin by a couple of one hundredths. So um, that was interesting. That's something that not many people are really talking about um, in Australia. Mm. Hey, we talked about relays, uh, and obviously there's been some conjecture um, around the women's relay makeup, and obviously it's hard to say conjecture when we broke a world record, but there was definitely some conjecture, especially around little Molly O'Callaghan, how well she was swimming. We know she broke a junior world record in the in the heats of the 200, 4 by 200 Rather than sort of getting onto that, Gian, have you been in any sort of positions yourself with relay makeups, and, and can you give us sort of an idea on how those selection processes go, whether it's gone your way or gone not your way? Oh, great question. Um, I'm still 
quite confused about the four by two, the women's four by two in Tokyo, to be completely honest. Uh, I know it's not the first time they've done it. From my my uh, my personal experience, I've uh, probably the only conjecture I've, I've had in relays has actually been uh, the four by one medley relay in Athens in 2004, where Liesl Jones swam the breaststroke leg in the final, uh, whereas Brooke Hansen actually swam a faster individual 100 breaststroke uh, earlier in the week. And there was a lot of conjecture about that. Um, going back to Tokyo, I, I would love to get your take on this, Bobby, because I know that they have done this before. Apparently they did it in 2008 uh, in Beijing where we replaced all four swimmers from the heats to the finals and we ended up winning that four by two in Beijing. But I, I, don't, I don't really understand what there is to be gained from it. The only thing that I can see that is, is you can be gained from it is that you potentially have eight girls or eight swimmers that get a medal at the end. Um, so you're sharing the love. But for me, I, I almost feel that it's a bit arrogant to do that at an Olympics at an Olympic level because it doesn't allow for any room for movement. It doesn't allow for anyone that's rising to the to the challenge of an Olympics. It doesn't allow for anyone that's swimming out of their skin. It doesn't allow for anyone that's not on their game. And we saw that in the women's four by two. Um, for those that don't quite understand, I, as soon as we saw the heat swimmers and the names in the heat swimmers and knowing that we were going to rest, always going to rest, uh, Emma McKeon, Ariane Titmus and Maddie Wilson, given that they had had a big program and were swimming well, we were always going to rest those three. And we had Leah Neal, who was only going to Tokyo as a relay swimmer. And the rule is, is that if you take an athlete, they must have a swim. So as soon as we saw that Leah wasn't involved in the heat swimmers, we knew that they had to swim her in the final and we knew they were going to replace all four. And we saw the leadoff swim of Molly O'Callaghan with 155-1. <laughs> and I do not understand how, I mean, you've got Dean Boxall, who I think is that relay coach. Dean trains Molly Meg Harris, like he knows they're in form. We knew they were in form after the four by one freestyle relay. And I don't understand why the decision was made to not have two young swimmers or all four girls in the heat fighting it out for that final position in the, fi in the finals team. I, I, I still don't have any answers for it. Bobby, do you? I don't have the answers. I, I can definitely break it down, but you know where do where do we start it's it's definitely we, we left a gold medal on the table there mm. um um we could have won all three women's relays mm. you know that's how close we were if anybody looking at it on paper the four by 200 we were we should have really demolished the competition um mm. broken the world record well we actually all three teams ended up breaking the world record as a matter of fact but i'm, I'm with you once i saw the heat team um, it was clear that they were going to substitute all four swimmers for the final and Leah Neal would be in that final. But, um, you know, McKeon, Titmus, Maddie Wilson, no questions asked. Um, everybody knows they go straight into the final. Those girls needed some rest. Now, Leah Neal was not, uh, it shouldn't have been a clear-cut decision to go straight into the final. Um, we don't know if she did something amazing at training camp. We don't know if she time-trialed for the race blah, 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 blah. But she went 156-0 at the trials, which is incredibly fast to come forth. Um, but she only beat the two teenagers, Meg Harris and Molly O'Callaghan, by 0.2 at the trials. And then we saw those two swim the 100 metres, 100-metre um, relay early in the week, and they went really fast, so they were on song, um, whereas we hadn't seen Leonil compete yet. So, you know, that is unusual. And then, obviously, Molly goes 155-1 leading off the relay, um, and they did lead her off both relays in the heats. She's only 17, so maybe they're trying to save her relay changeover not to, um, mm -hmm. to get into trouble with any sort of disqualif disqualifications. But they were definitely trying to maximise medals around the team by giving more people a heat swim. Um, Brianna Throssell, Tamsin Cook um, were probably pretty lucky to get a heat swim and, and walk away with a medal. Um, but it's a bronze. It's, it's not a gold. So 
it could have been, it could have, the team could have been put together better. And then we need to break down the order of the girls. They swam the fastest two in the world, Ariane Titmus and Emma McKeon first and second. Um, both girls had had a heavy schedule up to that point. Um, they didn't deliver anything close to their PVs. Ariane was 1.5 seconds over her PV, one second over her individual swim from 24 hours earlier. And Emma McKeon was, again, one and a half seconds over her PB, and, and she's normally incredible in, in relays. So we started off with our two big guns, and we weren't even leading the race. You know, there was huge pressure on Maddie Wilson and Leah Neal at that point. Mm. Um, China was swimming out of their skin, and the U.S. had Katie Ledecky at the end. So, you know, we could have at least had either Titmus or McKeon as the fourth leg swimmer so mm. that. You, you, you always want your best swimmers deciding who gets the gold medal. You know, you want one of your best swimmers at the end. That's why we always put Kyle Chalmers at the end. It's why we put Ian Thorpe at the end. Um, it's why Kate Campbell anchored two relays to gold medals this week. You want your best swimmer, um, your team leader, finishing off the race. I, I think if, if we had Titmus or McKeon at the end, they were capable of of swimming out of their skin um, to try and get the gold medal. So there was, you know, Leah Neal's unfortunately the scapegoat for that relay team, even though she swam well, she swam a 155 split, which is as good as you can get out of Leah Neal. Um, but she hadn't been on the Australian team much in the last five years since Rio. Um, it's The question is how did how was she such a convincing um, person to slot straight into the finals team? Um, but, you know, they, they broke the world record. They, they got third. The other team swam amazing, but that's definitely one that got away for Australia. Mm. And as you said, Bobby, it also doesn't allow for things that you can't control. As you said, the Chinese team swam a collective PB of over four seconds. Yeah. So that was extraordinary. And then Ledecky, to anchor the Americans, swam I think one and a half seconds or a second faster than her individual swim the day yeah. before. So everyone else rose to the challenge except us. And that was the difference. Yeah, I would have, um, you know, two years ago in Korea, we, we anchored Emma McKeon and she was in a head to head battle with, with the American girl. Um, and she had to really dig deep um, to get that, um, to get that win and that victory, which, which she did. And, you know, I think Emma, if Emma's on the end of that relay, if everybody swims their, their same times, Emma's capable of going one and a half to two seconds quicker in that moment mm. and, and being a hero for, for the relay team and for the country. And, and when we talk about breakout stars and, you know, these memorable performances, Emma McKeon is, is probably the breakout star of the Olympic Games because she won so many medals um, without being favourite coming in, without attracting the limelight, without being overly emotional or whatnot. But that could have been her anchor moment for the relay team to win in, in an all-time great relay battle, um, like we've seen Kate Campbell do, like we've seen Ian Thorpe do. Um, mm. That was definitely, yeah, just, just one that got away from Australia. Well, you guys have led me straight into it, the professionals that you are, straight into the next question, which was going to be about Emma McKeon. Uh, obviously, mm. she swam the Olympics of her life, becoming Australia's most successful Olympian of all time. Um, you know, it can't be easy with the massive program she had. So rather than talk about the, the medals, I, I want to get a bit of an insight. Give the listeners an insight into what it's like having to back up heat after heat, final after final, relay after relay, day after day. And the pressure's on at the end of the day to try and perform because we know she came in red hot, so we know she came in as the favourite. She's got a lot of swimming that went on this week. I don't know the kilometres. I can't remember. I saw it on Channel 7 last night, but it was something like 25 kilometres or something like that. It was a lot of racing. Give us a little bit of an insight into what it's like as an athlete having to back up that much and still perform. I think there's a lot of reasons why Emma does as many races as she does. And some of it is actually because of her, I want to say, emotional state and what Emma has believed is actually possible prior to this week in Tokyo. And it puts a lot of pressure on an athlete and a coach relationship because, let's face it, it's a domino effect. If you've got, in Emma's case, six, seven races, in the week and you start off 
and you don't hit your your straps in your first one, you don't meet expectations in your first one, then it's very difficult mentally to go, right, I've got to try and put that one aside and race again and, and find something different to what's going on here, knowing that I'm not swimming well. So as soon as we saw that Emma was swimming well off the four by one relay, we knew we were on for a big week, which is sensational. But for me, putting it down to Emma, I said on social media that for me, the difference has been is that physically we've always known Emma was capable of this week. Physically, she's an exceptionally talented athlete. Mentally, she's she's always been pretty good. As we've said, she's always had a big program. She's been able to back up race after race after race. Um, she's one of the hardest trainers out there. She's incredibly dedicated to it, her training. But I think for me emotionally, as I touched on before, this is the first time that I've seen Emma believe that she was capable of standing on top of the medal dice in the in the gold medal position as an individual Olympic gold medalist. Everyone else around her has believed that that's what she was capable of and they've just had to be patient. This is the first time that I've seen Emma, and she spoke about it in her interview with Nathan afterwards after the 53, where she said, you know, I don't normally say this but I came here to win. I wanted, I wanted to win this week. And we've never heard that from Emma before. And I've never felt that she believed she could do it before this week in Tokyo. And that's the difference. You go from Emma, who was always a minor medalist and an incredible integral member of our relay teams, to being two-time individual Olympic gold medalist and the most successful Australian Olympian of all time. I mean, that's the difference. All it took was for Emma to believe that it was possible. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think a lot of that comes down to her move, I think it was four or five years ago, to, to Michael Boll. Um, you know, Boll is hands down the, the best coach in Australia in the, in the last 20 years and obviously had exceptional um, results and achievements with Stephanie Rice, her three Olympic gold medals in 2008. And his the squads that he's had and, and the emotional control that, that he can have over swimmers and, and athletes and squads, especially female athletes, um, is probably what attracted Emma to go there in the first place. And then having the confidence to have a, a coach like Michael Ball in your corner telling you that you can do this, that I believe in you, this one's f- that a race that you can win has has delivered that for her. And like you said, we, we've always seen Emma on podiums, um, you know, as silver or bronze medalist at a world or an Olympic level and obviously being a part of Australian winning relay teams without being the star. We've always had Kate Campbell, Bronte Campbell, Emily Seabom being the star of these relay teams and, and Emma continually doing her job. And this week we saw her step up. Um, she broke an Olympic re- How many times did she break an Olympic record in the heat or the semi and the final? <laughs> Mm. Um, so she had the confidence. She had the. She's obviously got the physical ability. She's got the emotional control to back up and repeatedly swim at her best for the whole week, and um, and she got the job done. You know, she she never lost it at, at any point. She didn't lose um, her emotions or or physically. She had some tough doubles there with the with the mixed medley relay on, on one of those nights, but. The decision to drop the 200-metre freestyle gave her so much more energy for the back end of the week. To, to not do three rounds of a 200 freestyle up against Titmus and Ledecky where she's probably not going to beat those sort of swimmers in that event gave her a lot more medal-winning opportunities in the second half of the week. And the background training for 200 freestyle, she was a medalist in Rio in that event five years ago. She's, she's been one of the best swimmers in the world over 200 butterflies as well. Um, I'd love to, 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 for you to chat to Emma, Robbie, but I don't think any of those races hurt Emma. I don't think she's scared of 100 fly, 100 free or a 50 free. I, I think she can get in and go max every single time, whether it's a heat, semi or final. And the one that she probably was a little bit hesitant about was the 200 freestyle in the relay. And, and that was probably her poorer performance. But I think physically she can handle so much uh, racing load, Emma, and the medals assuming her career continues on for another three years or, or longer, those medals aren't going to stop for Emma McKeon. Well, I want to jump in quickly, Bobby, and say that's the, the biggest one for me about the coach-athlete relationship was the 50 freestyle because, for me, that was almost all Michael Bowl 
and you're going to you're going to say well what do you mean there but as you just said Emma has been a career training for the 200 free all of her training has been geared towards that 200 distance if you look at it in a timeline whereas where it's changed is we've seen her the speed that has come in the 50 wasn't ever there because of the training geared towards the 200 prior. Now, you look at Emma's in the progression in the 53, she was only equal seventh in the world in April this year on times. And in front of her were two Australians. She was equal seventh with Bronte. Kate Campbell was ahead of her. So if you look at a couple of months ago, we weren't even sure if Emma was going to contest the 53 at trials, let alone if she was going to make the team in that event. And that's where I believe Bowley came in and went, I've seen what you can do speed-wise in training. I don't reckon we've seen anything of what you're capable like in this 50 but we're going to have to sacrifice the 200 to go the 50 speed. And that was the gamble. And that has more than paid off because of your point exactly, Bobby. Three 200s is a really uh, big ask in a heavy week in terms of racing, that, that type of distance and backing up after a 200. Whereas if you've got the possibly the speed to, to win a 50, you're going to take that option because of the week overall that Emma performs in. And uh, for me, again, that's Michael Boll going, I reckon we're going to switch things up here. You might be, you know, a great 200 freestyler, but I reckon you can be an even better 50 freestyler if we give it a chance. And didn't that pay off? To your point, hey, yeah, Gian, didn't Sarah many. Showstrom? Sorry, didn't Sarah Showstrom say in an interview over there? I thought she swam. I thought she was a 200 freestyler. Exactly right. And, and that's the thing. You know, um, I, I sent out a tweet that said, if you told me six months ago that Emma McKean was going to win the, the 53 at the Olympics, I would have laughed at you. Look who's laughing now. Because as I said, the progression has just been extraordinary. And it's because it's been allowed to happen. Whereas she's been so buried under that 200 freestyle work that the speed was never there. We've never seen Emma feature in that 53 like she did at these Olympics. And again, full credit to Michael Boll and the thought process behind that, seeing that there was a potential uh, gold medal there or medal up for grabs and knowing that Emma was capable of doing that. The, the people we're forgetting are, are Kate and Bronte Campbell here because they've been our sprint superstars mm -hmm. for, the, for the better part of 10 years. And I think it was only in 2019 Emma got, she beat Bronte Campbell in the 100. So it was the first time she raced the 100 freestyle at a world or an Olympic level. And then I think once she beat Bronte there, she went, you know, she was in the 100 free final at the World Championships and, and she got her fourth or fifth and, and she competed there. And then it was earlier this year, Robbie, that we were talking about that she, at the Sydney Open before the trial, she beat Kate in the 100 freestyle. Mm -hmm. And she beat her in the 50. And then that then that belief starts building. And I think if you can beat Kate Campbell in 100 freestyle at an in-season meet, you can beat anybody in the world. Like she figured out a way to beat Kate Campbell by putting pressure on her, by going out fast and trusting that 200-meter um, endurance training that she's got on the second 50. So she did that again at the trials. She employed that same race strategy, beat Kate Campbell in the 100 free there. I think, did she win the 50 at trials or did Kate beat her in the yeah. 50? No, she won the 50, I think, didn't she? So she, yes. you know, again, the confidence is building. And I think you come into the Olympics at that point going, well, I can repeatedly beat Kate Campbell, who's the former world record holder, um, the current world record holder, Sostrom's, you know, coming off a broken elbow. One of the defending Olympic champions isn't even in the final. A lot of things happened and Emma's, a lot of people was sort of declining and Emma was improving constantly in the last 18 months. Um, and, and the peak is, is for Olympic gold medals, you know, um, it was a perfect preparation for, for Emma McKean and Michael Boll. Now, Bobby, you mentioned Kate Campbell there and Kate Campbell, Emily Seabom competing in their fourth Olympic games, um, not just competed, finished individual bronze medals as well as relay medals, which is an incredible effort. How proud are we of these two girls? And, and just give us an insight into what goes into making four Olympic games. Like that's just, that's 16 years, well, 17 years given, given, you know, the extra year we've had. That's a lot of preparations. That's a lot of early mornings. That's a lot of injuries that go along with it. It's a pretty incredible feat. It's incredible, uh, incredible longevity, which I think definitely 
shows to the public their sort of commitment and passion to, to the sport. And, and definitely that's what we're seeing Kate get rewarded now, um, you know, being a flag bearer for the opening ceremony. Um, like I said to you before, my first Australian team in 2008, um, Kate and, and Emily Sivon were on that team as sort of 16 or 17-year-olds. Um, obviously, at, at those Olympics, um, Emily won gold in the 4 by 100 medley, medley relay. And Kate, um, Kate got an individual bronze in the 53 as a 16-year-old. So not only were they making Australian teams and Olympic teams, but they were winning medals and gold medals on the, um, on the biggest stage um, in the world. So, um, you know, they're, they're still going. They're a couple of years younger than me. And I said to you before, like, I'm three years retired with two kids and, and these guys are still winning Olympic medals for Australia. Um, it's, it's incredible. And, and we can't even talk about their careers, um, you know, as, as finished because they could can, can continue going. There's ISL competitions to do. There's a world champs and a Commonwealth Games next year. And, and obviously the next Olympic Games is only three years away. So um, I don't think either of them are going to retire um, immediately off these games. I think that they've got a little bit more to give, which is, which is um, incredible longevity. Unbelievable. I, uh, I, for me, it's all about mental toughness. Um, you know, we've always said that we as swimmers should be like track athletes in the fact that we should probably hit our, our peak physical ability around that mid to late 20s. Um, you know, your strength to weight ratio, all of that kind of should peak around that time, whereas mentally we as swimmers never get there. And so these women have been, and we've only seen three women do it in Australian swimming history with Liesl Jones, Emily Seabom and Kate Campbell go to four Olympics. And the mental challenges that they've all, all three of those have faced to go to their fourth Olympics is nothing short of extraordinary. You look at Kate coming off 2016 and in Rio when, you know, in her own words, it was the most spectacular choke in swimming Olympic history, which I think is a bit harsh, but she was by far and away the, the favourite going into that and it didn't come, it didn't play that way in Rio. The way that she's worked on herself, the way that she's unpacked that baggage, the way that she's found a way to fall in love with swimming again, it's an absolute credit to the mental capacity that, um, that Kate Campbell has to not only go to a fourth Olympics, but to still stand on the medal podium in the 100 free, um, just absolutely extraordinary. I, can, I cannot put into words almost how amazing it is. And then you look at Emily Seabom, who, um, you know, made her first Australian team in 2007 as a 14-year-old. I retired the year before and I, was, I knew that someone was looking after me because, thank goodness, I would have been beaten by a 14-year-old <laughs> for another 12 months in Emily Seabom. And, uh, you, you know, to go as a, a 15, 16-year-old to Beijing, the, you know, to be an Olympic silver medalist in the 100 backstroke in London after breaking the Olympic record in prelims and just, you know, not being able to put it together perfectly in that, in that final. Um, the fact that she's had her challenges with relationships played out in the public. She, um, unbelievably, I, I didn't even know it myself, but has had an issue with an eating disorder over the last two years. And again, the mental strength of M to come back over all that time and once again, find her love from swimming, moving to Michael Bowl, another great um, coaching relationship there has invigorated her career. M's actually said that she said, bring on Paris 2024. So absolutely wow. extraordinary to think that she's chasing down now her fifth Olympics. Whereas I reckon I'm going to challenge you, Bobby, on the Kate side. I reckon Kate, that will be the last Olympic experience we see of Kate. I think Kate's now got other things that she's, she's challenging for. She's put a name down, uh, which I think is announced in the next uh, day or so about uh, the uh, International Olympic Committee's uh, athlete representation, uh, which they had to vote for in the Athlete Village. I think she's got a big future ahead of her changing and um, bettering the constitution of the sport of swimming uh, at the highest level. And I think that's probably what she's ready for now after seeing how she performed in Tokyo. So M continues on, I reckon. Um, Kate, 
maybe Commonwealth Games might be a, an option for her next year, but I, I think that's the final Olympic campaign we'll see for her. What did we think of the mixed relay concept? Um, obviously, there was a lot of conjecture going in. I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was a lot of fun. And, and as I spoke to Bobby about last week, I thought it brought a lot of those sort of super coach type fans out of the woodworks, you know, doing their numbers and trying to work out who, who would swim faster than who and who works better with who. Did you enjoy it, Gian? Did you, um, you know, did you do your own sort of maths around it and try and come up with your own makeup of the team? Um, I said that as well. I mean, I think this, I think it's fantastic. I love that we have in the sport of swimming the first time ever where you've got males and females competing in the same race. I think it's sensational. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't write off that there's, there's possibly more ways to do that in swimming in the future, which is very exciting. But uh, I sent out a tweet, I think, before it saying, I can you imagine, can you conceive how many facts and uh, or figures and um, uh, makeups of each team and tactics went into planning for each team that swam that final what they were going to do with their final four swimmers. I can't even begin to imagine the numbers that were crunched trying to figure out what your best team option was and tactically who was going to be swimming against who in that final. Um, so I think we've we've... I think we can do it better. I think we all learnt watching that final that there's possibly another configuration that might have worked maybe better, seeing how that final played out. Um, but, you know, I think it's also one where it, the fact that the lead is always changing throughout the race makes it incredibly exciting for a spectator and that you're either always going to have in that final freestyle leg a male hunting down a female and in, on the opposite side, a female out in front hoping to hold off the male assault. And I think that's just, my goodness, the, the, you know, the magic of sport in that moment was very apparent. Yeah, it was a questionable inclusion, I think, about five years ago when they said it was going to be an Olympic event. But that proved to be one of the most entertaining relays um, of, the, of the whole meet. And, and, again, it's one that the U.S., they probably got their order wrong and they they finished back in fifth and, and well off the podium. But there were so many numbers and stats and combinations and articles being written about what each country should do or, or could do leading in. And um, it all became too much for me. I just I just threw it out and I said, I'm just going to sit back and just and just watch this one. Um, and it proved to be Caleb Dressel for the US as the only male freestyler um, coming from basically last position to to see how many female freestylers he could run down and, and try and catch. And, and you know, they're, they're like 15, 20 metres ahead, the, the Great Britain team were, and, and he wasn't able to catch them. So, you know, from an entertainment perspective, it, it looked really cool um, seeing Adam Peaty and the Great Britain team win and, and him sort of picking up the, the female members of that team and, and giving them a hug is um, what we don't normally see um, around swimming with those, with those mixed genders. So it was definitely a lot of fun. And... Uh, um, coming out of it, um, statistically, it, it looks like butterfly breaststroke in particular is the, is the stroke where males have the biggest advantage over females. So that's the one with the biggest gap between um, medal winning times, um, breaststroke and butterfly. So the two power strokes. So the teams that had males on the breast and the fly um, were, were the better teams and that was Great Britain and, and they won. Um, and Australia had, I think we had that as well with Stubblity, Cook and Temple in the middle of that relay team, and, and, um, and we finished with the bronze medal. So um, in future, I think more countries will, will match that, um, and it's more exciting than the freestyle relay because we, in the freestyle relay, we generally always see two males go first and two males, females go uh, third and fourth, so it's it's pretty neutralised racing, but in this one, um, it was everywhere. It was a lot of fun. It definitely stirred up some conversation, which was excellent um, and just different in terms of, you know, as I said, we are talking about, you know, Dressel 
versus Chalmers, but this was a lot different. <laughs> this was, you know, numbers and people, as I said, getting their calculators out. So I thought it was fantastic. Now, I know we're a bit time poor. We, and I said to you, Gian, we can talk forever. So I want to make sure uh, we get in in time. So we're going to finish with just some quick ones. I'll throw it out there and you guys just give me your quick answers um, and we'll see how we go with this. Who was your breakout star of the pool last week? And this can be from any country because I've got a couple myself from different countries. Huh. Uh, well, funnily enough, it's her second Olympics, but my breakout star was Emma McKean for what I spoke about before is that, uh, you know, very experienced swimmer, very capable swimmer, but this is the first time we've seen uh, her believe in herself and it's translated into the week that she had. So breakout star, funnily enough for me, is Emma McKean. Yeah, I'll go with, um, from an Australian perspective, like Zach Stubblity-Cook. I think that was one we don't normally see male breaststrokers from Australia do well. Um, he won that 200 breaststroke pretty convincingly, almost in a world record time as well. And he's not somebody that came in with a lot of fanfare or attention on him. Um, obviously, it's on and and it should be on McKeon Titmus and, and Kaylee McEwen as well. But um, that's he's somebody that, that we should be looking at, well, he is an Olympic champion, but like an absolute superstar. Um, he swims fast all year round. Uh, he can certainly dominate this men's 200 breaststroke for the next couple of years to come. Um, from an international perspective, there's, you know, I'm sure you've got a list there, Robbie, but, you know, the 17-year-old Lydia Jacobi, Jacobi women winning the women's 100 breaststroke, um, Hafnui from Tunisia, in the men's 400 freestyle, um, there, there are a lot of surprises and, and a lot of people that are going to walk away from from this swim meet as, as superstars in their respective countries. Who have you got, Robbie? Yeah, well, you you ticked them off, mate. Sean Maker uh, in the breaststroke as yeah. well. I thought she was a standout. Uh, Gian, I know you're going to have to – we're going to have to jump off in a second, so I'll, I'll wrap it up now. Thank you very much for coming on for a chat. Genuinely appreciate it. Um, hope you enjoy the rest of the games. Go the Aussies in all the sports. And until we, uh, we have a chat again, mate, thank you very much for coming on Off the Block Swimming Podcast. Absolute pleasure. Lovely to dissect with you both. That was awesome. Thank you, Gian. Thanks, Gian. Thank you, Bobby.